Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. When is the decline in the value of a currency a crisis? Well, we'll find out from Dr. Win Thin, Global Head of Emerging Markets FX at Brown Brothers Harriman. Win Thin, thanks very much for being with us. I want you to give us your thoughts about what's happening with Turkey after we see the Turkish lira slide more than 3% against the U.S. dollar, trading right now at 4.86. Yes. Um, look, we've been uh, seeing a broad-based emerging market sell-off really since the quarter began, uh, actually back in late March. Um, but what we've seen, uh, these selling pressures have intensified uh, for certain countries. Argentina was, was sort of the first to come under the gun, and now Turkey is, is, is being sold. Now, here's the difference. To me, it's a critical difference. Both, both suffer from very weak fundamentals, um, political concerns, etc. But Argentina made some bold moves uh, over the last several weeks to try and, and stop the route. They hiked rates to 40%. They announced some fiscal tightening, and they said they would go uh, to the IMF for a standby agreement. You know, all very orthodox. And that's what Mr. Macri, President Macri, is known for. But Turkey is, is, is really on the other end of the spectrum. Mr. Erdogan, uh, President Erdogan, has, has very rocky relations with the, with the West. Uh, he's always talking about the um, you know, Western efforts to destabilize his country. He wants to lower interest rates, not hike them. So there's really, to me, a, a stark difference um, in the policy response. And because the central bank has done nothing yet, um, I, I, the markets have really a green light to sell the lira at this point. So, uh, when thank you so much for being with us because I'm struggling to understand the situation in Turkey because, frankly, the economy has been growing at, at a pretty uh, quick uh, clip. There seems to be a lot of strength there. Is this just simply a political crisis with President Erdogan being obstinate in the face of an election trying to uh, engender support somehow with mass inflation? <laughs> Well, you know, it's a little bit of everything. Um, the one thing I think is you are correct that the economy is doing well. In fact, I th- the many investors I think it's doing too well. It's overheating. Inflation is up uh, close to 11%. Um, the current account deficit is blowing out. Um, and uh, the central bank is, is basically sitting on its hands as, as its currency is weakened. Now, this is, again, within the context of, of broad-based EM weakness. You know, in a rising U.S. interest rate environment, um, emerging market typically comes under stress, and it, it's avoided it for much of this past year, but it's really come back with a vengeance. Uh, countries that have high degree of external financing needed, either the current account or short-term external debt, those are countries like Turkey that are very, very vulnerable in this environment. Argentina is also there. So to me, the interesting thing is that if you look at a year-to-date um, performance, I always do this on your WCRS page uh, for emerging markets, you'll see a, a wide, wide divergence. You've got four or five currencies that are actually up on the year, Colombian peso, uh, Chinese yuan, Malaysian ringgit. Taibot. Um, and yet you've got some that are down 20, well, I guess the Argentine peso is down 24%, Turkish lira is down 22%, year to date, Brazilian real almost 10%. So you see some real divergences. And I think that's the way it should work. That is, the countries with the stronger fundamentals uh, are going to outperform. They may come under some selling pressure, but they will do, do, do relatively better than countries with the weaker fundamentals. And that's what we've really seen unfolding in this higher uh, dollar, higher U.S. rate environment. 
I wonder at what point this dispersion will break down, because we've seen a lot of money go into emerging markets over the past five years into indexed funds that don't delineate between one country and another. And now you have a growing chorus of academics and, uh, and, and investment managers saying that they are concerned about an emerging markets crisis, the latest being Paul Krugman today tweeting, it's become at least possible to envision a classic 1997-98 style reinforcing crisis, emerging market currency falls, causing corporate debt to blow up, causing stress on the economy, causing further fall in the currency. Do you agree? Uh, I'm not quite as bearish, and there's one big reason for that. Uh, unlike 1994, or I would say even 97, 98, um, most emerging market currencies are now floating or managed floats. Um, in the past, we saw uh, 93, 94 was the Mexican tequila crisis, 97, 98 was the Asian crisis, where we had a variety of pegs come under stress and then eventually break. And those are a much more destabilizing, much more stressful on economy because you're going from a fixed exchange rate to you know, a, a, a freely floating, or I would say probably sinking exchange rate. To me, the floating exchange rates are, 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 uh, have been doing their job. There's, they work as a shock absorber. External shocks are reflected in weaker currency, and they allow over time these, these countries, the emerging market countries, to adjust their behavior, their borrowing, their hedging, et cetera, over a, a more extended amount of time. So. You know, to me, the weaker currencies are doing their job. This is what's supposed to happen. Uh, of course, we'll see some bankruptcies. I'm sure we'll see some defaults in the corporate set, uh, uh, sphere. But that's just, that's just part of the, the, the game. I think that's one of the problems that um, people were mispricing EM during this whole zero-rate environment, and now re we're repricing EM. And the ones that were, had the worst uh, fundamentals were, were sort of the most mispriced, and we have got, we're sort of early in this game. Who gets repriced next? Indonesia? Brazil? Well, uh, Brazil, I would say Brazil and Mexico are, are sort of in the sights because we've got uh, heightened political risk for both elections coming up, uh, as well as, as uh, somewhat weak fundamentals. So, you know, again, you know, we're not talking about a, a huge, um, you know, devaluation, uh, sort of default devaluation scenario. We are seeing, you know, under this floating exchange rate regime, we're seeing these currencies with poor fundamentals come under pressure. So uh, I would probably throw in uh, South Africa. Uh, perhaps Russia as well. Uh, India and Indonesia are sort of the worst in Asia, but not as, you know, really not as bad as what we're talking about in, in uh, our, say, Argentina and Turkey. But, you know, again, the microscope is on all these countries. Um, you know, I would just uh, tell our clients and, and investors in general to, to be discerning, to look at the fundamentals and realize that, you know, you can't sell everything en masse. Some, some should do better than others. Uh, some should do worse than others. And that's, that's really part of uh, the, the fundamental story that's lost uh, sometimes when there's a lot of liquidity being thrown around. Dr. Winthin, thank you so much for being with us. A really important day for you to, uh, to be here giving us some insight. Dr. Winthin, Global Head of Emerging Markets, uh, FX for Brown Brothers Harriman in New York. I'm sure this is a very interesting time for uh, Dr. Winthin, as well as all those dealing in emerging markets, considering the volatility that we've seen uh, throughout the spectrum of currencies from Turkey to Argentina. This is Bloomberg Markets.
Divisions, potential divisions among Federal Reserve officials over the yield curve and inflation. That'll be under the spotlight today when the U.S. Central Bank publishes minutes of its last policy meeting. Here to tell us more about this situation is Matt Miskin. He is a market strategist for John Hancock Investments. He's based in Boston, but he joins us here in our 1130 studios. Matt, a pleasure to have you with us. Uh, wondering if you could offer your thoughts. Are, are you having internal divisions uh, about the yield curve? and inflation and you would I think you'd be uh, accurate in describing that a lot of investors feel divided as well yeah actually we have very little division that we believe that of the biggest risks in the market today is if they get that third rate hike in from here making it a fourth rate hike if you do the math on that and where the Fed funds rate will stand and the two-year yield will stand on that uh, we could be looking at a 3.3% two-year yield by year end. The 10-year Treasury standing at just over 3% today. That would represent an inverted yield curve. To us, that risk could be minimized if the Fed does go slowly and pauses on one of those rate hikes throughout the course of the year. We're going to hear about that when the minutes are released at 2 and try to get insight for that June meeting that is, that is coming up very soon. So you think that it's really important what these meeting minutes say? from that perspective? Well, the symmetry around the inflation projection is critical. If they can let that inflation tick above that 2% target and be okay with that, then that kind of sets the, the pathway for taking one rate hike off the table. Okay. So it is a start of that. Now, is it going to be market moving? I mean, we're talking the May meeting, but what an, uh, investors and analysts are going to be doing is trying to extrapolate, do they go in June? And does the summary of economic projections in the June meeting set that up okay i want to make sure i really understand this in other words you're saying if the federal reserve hikes four times this year we will be looking at an inverted yield curve in short order by your end by if your you, end if you do the math of yeah. the 80 basis points between the fed funds rate and the two-year you put that on two and a half which is what the fed funds rate will be by year end if they do four rate hikes for the year that gets you 330. so does that mean that we head into recession next year Typically, going back over the last seven recessions, it has been a forewarning of a forthcoming recession. Usually there's a window. You know, in, in the mid-2000s, it was 23 months before the recession happened. Market peaked before that. But in uh, the mid-1990s, it, it was about six months. So it's not a precise measurement, but we would look at it as an opportunity to look to de-risk assets and think about risk management more so in the end of this year and into next year. So panic now and avoid the rush? No, because our base case is the Fed takes one off, one off the table. And that the Fed is trying to communicate to the market that inflation going above their target is okay. This is a relatively new phenomenon in, in terms of the symmetry language that's been put into their communication. Um, so, you know, risk management is always a part of our process. It's, it's critical. Um, but as we look into the end of the year, you know, we, we see if the Fed does continue to raise rates uh, to that fourth time, yeah, then that would be time to kind of think about it even more so. What does that do to the dollar? I mean, the dollar strength is something that if you had said to the Federal Reserve officials, you know, at the beginning of the year that we'd be at 117 against the euro, they might not have uh, have foreseen that. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And, and to us, that does mean dollar strengthening. That means U.S. equities look better than international. That's divergence of uh, global growth instead of the synchronized global growth. I mean, the PMI today, data today- Out just, of Europe, right? Yeah, out of Europe. And then the U.S. market PMI just came out down one-tenth. 
of a you know one tick basically while the european data came in softer yeah you're starting to see desynchronization of, of global growth here so uh, overnight, or yesterday afternoon, Mark Kiesel of PIMCO said that they're recommending that clients increase their allocation to cash to 10 to 15% from 5 to 10%. They said that they should probably cycle out of credit, in particular, longer dated corporate debt. Do you agree? You know, the short end of the curve is offering a pretty nice yield. Uh, so we get that because cash is yielding, you know, if you look at kind of the short end of the treasury curve to two and a half percent, not bad. The problem is you're not going to get diversification from equities if you cut all your duration away. Duration is what you want when we get into a recession. And, you know, that kind of strategy, if you're balancing that to, to offset your equities in a downturn, you know, if yields do collapse in the, in the longer end of the curve, that's actually where you want to be. So I get it, you know, in the next six months that you're going to be, you know, mitigating that duration risk uh, as the short end goes up. You're going to get some money there from from holding that. But when it goes to recession time, you want duration. So it'll be interesting to see if he ends up putting that back on six months from today, if we're kind of seeing this recessionary environment that might be happening in 19 or 2020. 20 seconds. Is there something specific you want to be looking for in the release of today's FOMC meeting minutes? symmetry. Do they really harp on it or not? All right. Thank you so much for being with us. Uh, really interesting ideas. Matt Miskin, market strategist for John Hancock Investments, based in Boston, but here in our 1130 studios today. Uh, really interesting. I wonder if the focus will be back on the yield curve after the release of those meeting minutes, uh, because as Matt was saying, they're expecting the yield curve to invert by year end, should the Federal Reserve go four times. Not necessarily a consensus view. I should just point out there are other people who think that there's uh, a significant more amount more room we have to go. But uh, fascinating. Thank you so much. Uh, right now, we actually are looking at some uh, strengthening uh, of the uh, lot U.S. Of government comp. A lot of buying. A lot of buying in the yeah, long end, 3% now at the uh, U.S. 10-year Treasury yield. As mortgage rates rise to the highest in at least seven years, the question is, when will it start to crimp people's demand for mortgages? Data today suggests that it already is. To talk about this more, I want to bring in Logan Motashami. He is Senior Loan Officer for AMC Lending. Logan, thank you so much for being with us. I'm talking about the data that showed that U.S. purchases of new homes fell in April, uh, more than people had expected. Do you think this is an indication that higher mortgage rates is crimping into the uh, home sales market at this point? No, for multiple reasons. Number one, <clears throat> purchase application data is at cycle highs uh, currently right now. Uh, the, and we've had year-over-year -year growth in every single week this year, even with higher home prices, even with higher mortgage rates, uh, um, and working from a higher base. This is not like what we saw in 2013 and 2014 when rates were higher in a non-seasonal time and you saw that uh, impacting demand. So as of now, absolutely not. Mortgage demand is at cycle highs. New home sales, it's, for me personally, is trending much better than I even thought. I was only looking for 2 to 5% growth this year. We're looking at double-digit sales growth this year for new home sales. The revisions were down, but they're not down big. So, so far, 
Uh, we haven't seen mortgage rates impact demand at all one bit. It's impacted the refinance market, but not the purchase market. We'll get to refinances in just a second. I'm curious, uh, are you seeing people put more cash down? Uh, no. Typically, when home prices rise, uh, the ability to uh, uh, put more down gets limited. But again, it dip- markets are different. You know, uh, uh, CA home buyers typically t- tend to be the highest income, highest net worth asset uh, people. So, you know, you get some buyers who put 20, 30% down, but then you get the uh, most of the other markets, you probably get a 3 to 5% down home buyer. So even new tax regulations uh, affecting uh, the deduction of uh, mortgage interest, that is, uh, I beg your pardon, um, uh, property taxes, uh, not affecting uh, home, home sales? Absolutely not, and it shouldn't. That's, that's a very marginal, small number of, of prospective home buyers that would actually look at that and change their mind. I, 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 I don't think that have, will, will have any impact because the mortgage uh, interest deduction is still up to 750 thousand, you know, the majority of homes are are under that level. So uh, I don't see that being any impact whatsoever. You know, Logan, we're talking in generalities and averages as though uh, the U.S. is a monolith. And obviously, it's a fragmented uh, market when it comes to real estate. And I'm wondering, you know, can we break out which part of the U.S. uh, property sales market is actually driving the whole bus here? Because we know that there has been robust growth in the prices and the sales of the higher end houses. um, But, you know, certainly there has been a dearth of affordable housing for people who are lower income, just the first time buyers, etc. Where are we on that, on that sort of dynamic uh, that seems to have gotten a little bit out of whack? There is no such thing as affordable housing in America. We do not create the incentives or the backdrop to create affordable housing. And this is a post-1996 phenomenon where we've just been building bigger and bigger homes. And whenever the economy gets weak, we lower interest rates, which spur demand. And uh, the, the notion that there's anything affordable out there, for a long time now, it's, it's just not feasible in my eyes because we base affordability indexes on people who supposedly have 20% down uh, with low interest rates. So uh, I, I don't even... I don't even subscribe to that thesis. I think if you want affordability, you move toward the middle of America where home prices are much smaller than, you know, the coastal areas. And, again, that goes into the U.S. economy. We, You know, more than 50 percent of the population are in five, six different areas in the U.S., and that tends to be where the high overheating home prices are. But, again, those people make money as well, and this is why you see home sales still slow and steady, uh, there's no record-breaking demand. This is one of the reasons why you don't see housing starts get to the 50-year moving average. But we don't build affordable housing. We gave that up decades ago when we subsidized the housing market with low down payments, low FICO score loans. Interest rates were lower. Their rate of growth has been falling for interest rates for decades. So to me, it's impossible to get affordable housing back uh, based on what the builders need to do, because the builders have to make money and they have to build bigger and bigger homes to get that profit margin, especially now with lumber prices up, labor costs up as well. Well, Logan, you just described some of the headwinds that many of the home builders are facing, and we got the report from Toll Brothers this week. Obviously, they produce luxury housing, but do you see any divergence between the health of your business and the somewhat lackluster fortunes of the home builders? Here's the thing with the builders. The builders were terribly expensive going into the year. And since new home 
sales, if you actually look at adjusting to population used in a six-month moving average, we're basically a little tad above what we would see in a recession. So they are dealing with low numbers, and they have to make as much money as possible uh, out there. So this is why they've been building bigger and bigger homes. I think it becomes an issue for them uh, um, if interest rates go to 6% or 6.5%, because these are mortgage buyers. It's not like existing homes that still has a record-breaking uh, cash buyer index out there. So, uh, But the demographics for housing – has been soft from 2008 to 2019. We're about to get into a demographic boom for home ownership. So because the numbers are still low for new home sales, they're going to run into a better demographic patch, unlike 2007 where we had a credit bubble. So I, I think the builders' sales have legs to go higher. It just becomes a profit margin story, lumber prices, labor costs, land costs. These things matter more now at this stage of the cycle. Uh, because sales are starting to mature toward more of a 50-year average. And when people talk about a demographic boom, they talk about all the millennials, uh, people who are going to be moving out of apartments and buying homes. Is there any evidence that this shift that we've seen accelerate toward renting rather than owning will reverse? This is, this is a really interesting topic. Millennials are the biggest home buyers in America today and have been for some time. They're the biggest home buyers in the world. But they buy homes age 32 and on. So that big demographic pitch right now that we have in America are ages 23 to 29. So this is why I've always stated for five years on Bloomberg, you have to wait till years 2020 to 2024. Now, last year was the first year that we had more homeowners than renters, and that makes sense. These, uh, these people are actually starting to live longer in their rents. Once they get up to the 32 age, they start to buy homes. So we're still a few years away from having a better demographic patch. But, but once they get to that age group, they, if, they, if they do have that kind of the educated, skilled wage uh, factor in their households, they tend to buy homes. So uh, it's, just, it's just a makeshift of the demographics in the cycle. It's very unique. We're, we're very old and we're very young. But once they get to that proper age group, they buy homes. And that, that data has been evident now for, for years. Thank you very much for being with us. Uh, Logan Matashami, he is a senior loan officer for AMC Lending Group. They are based in Irvine, California. You can follow Logan on Twitter at Logan Matashami. That's M-O-H-T-A-S-H-A-M-I. You're listening to Bloomberg. I'm Pim Fox along with Lisa Abramowitz. Coming up, we're going to be taking a look at what happens when Dodd-Frank legislation is changed. The U.S. currently imports most of the uranium that is used for fuel in nuclear power plants in order to generate electricity. About 14% of the uranium used in the United States comes from Russia. But what would happen if the Russian legislature decides to ban the export of uranium to the United States? Well, here to help us understand the situation is Lee Courier. He is the president, chief executive, and founder of NextGen Energy. They are based in Vancouver, British Columbia, and uh, they are the owners of a vast tract of land in the Athabasca region of Canada, where they mine for uranium. Lee, thank you very much for being with us. 
My pleasure. So did I set out the kind of situation that uh, that is that the country faces uh, accurately? Uh, yes, you did. Uh, you quite rightly pointed out that uh, the U.S. relies very heavily currently on uh, uranium source from Kazakhstan. Uh, with respect to uh, our project, we're currently in development, heading towards production, um, not currently in production. So, Lee, just to sort of give a sense of why why uranium is a hot topic, it's used in nuclear weapons, correct? Correct, and as a result, uh, perhaps comes under more scrutiny and is dealt with, uh, greeted with more skepticism than other than other commodities, correct? Uh, well, correct. It is it is a uh, source of energy. Uh, obviously, anything that uh, uh, that's produced in uh, Canada or, or Australia and, and countries that uh, produce uranium, who they sell it to, must be parties to the Non-Proliferation Treaty, and uh, they only sell to those countries. So yes, it, it is uh, used in nuclear uh, weapons, but uh, is uh, only mined. Um, for uh, electrical generation purposes. So then this sort of goes into what Pim was talking about, where the complicated sort of foreign relationship between the U.S. and Russia is uh, sort of an interesting <laughs> an interesting side story to the uranium market uh, when Russia or Kazakhstan is, is actually supplying most of the U.S.'s uranium. Yes, they are. They're, they're supplying it for the uh, the use in power generation uh, in the utilities, and it uh, the U.S. produces domestically very little uranium, and hence uh, they're, they're currently reliant on uh, imports of uranium from Canada, uh, Australia, Kazakhstan, and uh, uh, predominantly uh, to service their uh, their current requirements. So can you tell us what would a, a ban on the export of uranium from Russia, which accounts for 14% of U.S. imports, what would that do to the price of uranium? Look, it, that would uh, exacerbate uh, an already uh, supply-side situation where there's a lot of mines uh, around the world closing uh, due to high costs of production and, uh, and being at the end of their useful mine lives. It would exacerbate the, that, that situation and I, I think undoubtedly have a very positive impact on the uh, price of uranium. Are you expecting to see uh, higher prices and more demand for, for the uranium that you your company mines? Well, yes, I, I do. We have uh, an asset that's located in Saskatchewan, Canada. It's ranked the number one mining jurisdiction in the world. and. In this day and age, with uh, geopolitical uh, issues becoming even more prevalent than, than what they have been in the past, uh, uranium source from countries that have uh, a very stable sovereign jurisdiction, yeah. such as Canada and, and, and Australia, uh, I think will start to see a, a premium or, or greater attention from the US utilities with respect to sourcing their uranium supply yeah. um, from uh, Canada uh, predominantly.
You know, Lee, it's it's interesting when I think of aluminum, for example, I have, uh, you know, this feeling of, of industry and this feeling of building things or else aluminum foil for my children's lunch. When I think of uranium, it kind of makes me feel uneasy. I think about something that uh, sort of uh, has a short half-life that's used in weapons that, you know, is, is dangerous um, and, and flammable. Can you give me just a sense? Can you give me a picture of what a uranium mine looks like and you know sort of whether whether the impression that that I have is sort of false and that it's just like any other kind of mined material yeah it is when from a mining perspective look at the mine that uh, we uh, are developing uh, or or in uh, the other ones in Canada or or anywhere in the world really uh, are very very benign uh, they're no more uh, complicated than a, a gold mine or a copper mine or aluminum mine um, look, uranium is a fantastic source of energy. Uh, it's why nuclear energy is such is the lowest cost of uh, a given output of electricity. is the lowest on the planet, uh, and it emits no carbon emissions. Uh, the 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 fact that it's such a fantastic source of energy is why it has been used uh, in the past in uh, in nuclear weapons, but. Um, from the mining perspective, it's, it's very benign. It's not until it gets into the nuclear fusion process in the in the utility that uh, it generates its its terrific power. But uh, look, uh, there's no denying it. it. It has had that uh, uh, history uh, in the past. But um, as I said earlier, uh, mined uranium is very benign. It's no more. Um, complicated than uh, many gold mines around the world. And uh, as a source of electricity, it's the lowest cost of power. And that's over time, and it's been proven since the 60s that is the case. Yeah. And now with uh, carbon emissions being such a... Uh, well, I think it's actually one of the planet's largest issues um, to resolve and, and properly address attention to, Yeah, that it's the only form of clean power that provides base load power. So wind, solar, all the renewables are fantastic initiatives uh, and must be pursued. But with respect to our requirements and the world's population through at least till at least 2050, yeah. uh, nuclear power is the only answer. And, and I stress the only answer. And I think a lot of countries are starting to uh, realise that. China will become the world's largest consumer of electric, of nuclear power uh, sometime in the 2020th decade and overtaking the US as the largest consumer. Yeah. And you're also seeing uh, a lot of other countries around the world uh, uh, extend yeah. the licenses of nuclear power stations yeah. uh, because it's just unbeatable in terms of a, a good, clean, low-cost source of energy. Lee Courier, thank you so much for being with us. He's president, chief executive, and founder of NextGen Energy based in Vancouver, British Columbia. Coming up, politics, policy, power, and law. Uh, Bloomberg's own June Grosso uh, is joining us now. The show is being broadcast from the Bloomberg Law Leadership Forum. Real quick, June, what are you focusing on today? Well, Rod Rosenstein is making a speech right now. We're going to be talking to the top lawyers at companies like GE about regulatory compliance. Stick with it. Sounds fascinating. I will be listening. So should you. Bloomberg Politics, Policy, Power, and Law. That is next. I'm Lisa Abramowitz, along with my co-host, Pim Fox, and this is Bloomberg Radio.
Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.